Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This episode of See Here is dedicated to all of the great musicians, artists, recorders, composers, and all of those out there who have given us years and years of amazing, incredible and sadly overlooked library music. You're listening to see here. to episode 61 of See Here Podcast. Welcome. We speak about music-related movies. We have a treat for you tonight. My name is Morris. I'm here in Melbourne. Over in Toronto, we have Mr. Tim Merrill. Howdy. And over in Bath, we have Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good evening. We have a very exciting interview for you. And actually, this is the last in our line of interview podcasts for the moment. We've just had a five-month run. We've run out of people to interview for the moment. We'll be getting back to doing film review, film discussion type podcasts from next month. But more about that later. This time around, we're speaking to the director of a new film talking about library music. The director's name is Paul Elliott. We've just gotten off the Skype with him and a fascinating guy talking about a fascinating subject, library music. I don't think we actually sort of asked him officially, how do you explain library music to people who don't know it? But it's essentially soundtracks for films that haven't been made yet. So we'll let him go into further detail about it. But we had an absolute blast talking to Paul. And the exciting thing that we all agreed on was that a whole bunch of music from musicians who you might not know by name, but you know a ton of this music even if you don't know it by name. And we'll cover that in the interview and I'll be presenting clips throughout the conversation and you'll be saying, yeah, I know that one. Oh, I've heard that one before. So uh, some very exciting stuff coming up. We'll play the trailer for the film right now and then we'll get into the interview with Paul. You're listening to See Here. So for somebody that doesn't know what library music is, <laughs> what's library music? What do you, you say?
I just think it's it's a great Cinderella story. I think you're talking about music that that wasn't meant to be known by people. It's recognized as a rightfully so as well as an art form. When people hear it, they really like it. But most people don't seek out classic music. As far as rare stuff go on vinyl, it's it's the epitome of record digging because they're not for consumers in the first place, you know? They were for consumption, but not consumers. It's not selling itself to you by any means. It wasn't sold in the stores. It wasn't, It's they did not cram it down your throat. These, they just, they were, it's just there. When you do find these occasional ones that are very hard to find, but sound like nothing else you've ever heard in your life, then it, it is often the best music you've heard, ever. Maybe it's the sound, maybe it's the sound, maybe the sound of the drum, the sound of the bass. It was the golden era of recording and mixing audio because the, the, the sources that were used were still people playing instruments. episode 61 of the See Here podcast and the three of us are extremely excited because on the other end of a Skype connection we're speaking to from the south of London film director Paul Elliott he's the director of a new excellent documentary called The Library Music Film welcome to See Here Paul thank you it's nice to be here thanks very much for coming on congratulations on The Library Music Film and finally getting it released I knew that you had a few obstructions in the way and delays and all the sorts of things that happened to film but before before we actually get into talking about the film and about library music in general, tell us a little bit about your background and what music were you listening to before you discovered library music? What were you really into? Library music for me goes goes back to when I was about 13, 14. I was just starting to DJ and I was playing hip-hop music and in my music department at school, I, like I was always trying to find records to sample, trying to make my own music with samples. And in the music department of my school, there was in the back of the office where the teachers were, there was a shelf of records and some of them were library music records there's some kpms and some chapels and some other weird bbc kind of like sound effects records while they weren't looking one day i went in and stuck them all in my bag took them home with me and had these records and some of them were terrible or i thought they were terrible at the time a lot of them were orchestral stuff but there was some kpms in there and these bbc weird sound effects ones that were brilliant the last of the kpm ones that i kept up until about three years ago but i, I don't know i don't have it anymore i knew what uh, library music was at that stage and then i, I carried on djing and i was, I was playing a lot of hip-hop was playing a lot of funk and soul and library kind of crosses over into that quite a bit there were other djs that i'd, that I'd be playing with and they'd play something and i'd go oh, what's that man and, and they'd, they'd say it's this library thing and, and i still hadn't really cottoned on to what it was i knew that there was some good music but hadn't really figured what library music was really intended for that was until i don't know maybe maybe another 10 years on from there i was aware of, of what it was for and, and then i became a musician and I, I mean i was still djing quite a bit but i was playing music and making music and so I was aware of what library music's real purpose was and then we were making well, I sort of jump around all over the place because I do lots of different things so primarily
necessarily I'm a musician, but I'm also a filmmaker and I make lots of music videos and I also do artwork for record sleeves and things like that. So I, I keep myself busy doing lots of different things. So if I jump about too much, let me know. Um, That's fine. I was DJing, then I was making music and I was, I was, I was kind of doing that for a while. And, and then I knew from making music what library music's real function was. And then fast forward a little bit further on, I was making a film with uh, with Sean Lambeth about the, the record producer youth. We just interviewed Paul McCartney and we needed somebody to reenact Paul McCartney making a record because during the interview he'd explained how he worked with youth and he on the spot made up a song and he was sort of saying hey and I, I'd play bass and then he'd sing a bass line that he just made up there and then and then he said oh, and then I put some piano chords on and I did this and I did that to illustrate we got a friend of mine Sean Lee to play the part of Paul McCartney. So you'd just see his hands playing the bass. And then when Paul McCartney says, oh, you know, I put a bit of Celeste on, we'd have Sean do that. And, and so that became that segment of the film. But while we were filming that in Sean Lee's studio, he said, uh, he said, I've got this great idea for a documentary. I said, oh, yeah, what's that then? He said, library music. I said, yeah. He said, well, nobody's ever done anything about library music. There's nothing out there. And these guys that made these classic records, they're all getting on. You know, they're all in their sort of late 70s, 80s. And soon they're not going to be with us. And there's no point making a film when they're all gone. You know, this this needs to be told now. And I said, I said to him, yeah, yeah, OK, mate, can we just carry on doing this shoot for this <laughs> film, please? <Yeah. laughs> and so and so we, we kind of did that. And then the week after, I was up north doing a job and I was in a hotel room on my own for a week, just working on this job on my own. And there was nothing there. It was on like this industrial estate and so I was trying to occupy my time and trying to think of cool things to do while I was there and this idea of Sean's kept rolling around in my head library music so I, I got on Google we had a little search and there was nothing of substance about library music I mean there was a few articles and there was some blog posts and there was an interview with Alan Hawkshaw but there was nothing really worthwhile so I phoned him up and said look this idea you've got I think we should do it so you know how do we go about starting this so the three of us the the two Sean's and myself we met up in Primrose Hill and spoke about how we were going to make this film and it was going to be brilliant and we were going to meet everybody and go everywhere and we did the following week we were interviewing Alan Hawkshaw and Johnny Trunk and that was about four years ago and it, it took about three years to shoot the film and we, we traveled to about I think five countries and interviewed about 50 people the actual kind of libraries themselves people that work for libraries library musicians composers arrangers and then we, we also interviewed fans of library collectors DJs and and producers that are playing library in clubs and also sampling library for, for current music. Uh, so it's this crazy journey. You know, it, it sort of took over. It just became this thing that we just, you know, it took over our lives and we just we just did it. And, and the more we got into the story, the more people we wanted to see and the more people wanted to see us. So it became this sort of never-ending journey making this film. And, and at one point, we just sort of said, right, that's it. We've got to kind of make a film out of this now because we had about 120 hours of footage. It was bonkers. It was really bonkers. Yeah. Every every interview would be about two hours long. There was all the cutaways. So you'd go to Rome and so you'd shoot in the studio there where the guys from iMark 4 recorded all their stuff. And then you'd go to Paris and you'd be interviewing people in CBE studios where they recorded pretty much all of the telemusic records. Mm -hmm. And so we'd shooting stuff in the studios there and then we'd go and see people's record collections and we went to the the warner chapel archive in hamburg and i mean it's just it was it was a bonkers journey so, so yeah we, we got to the point where right we've got to make a film and then the sort of post-production process took about a year and then we've now we've been doing about six months of promo we're at the other side now
There's been recently a release of a book and a, a record called Unusual Sounds. W- were you connected to that? No, I've met David Hollander now a couple of times through the KPM All Stars thing that happened over here. It was the premiere of the of the film. I don't know whether you heard about it. It was a day of library at the British Library. We had the screening of the film, the premiere of the film. David Hollander and Andy Votel did like a Q&A thing with some of the composers. And then after that, there was a uh, KPM All Stars concert where you had composers like Alan Hawkshaw and Brian Bennett was there but he didn't perform Duncan Lamont Alan Parker John Cameron they all performed live to like a, a I mean our, our film screening was sold out and then the gig in the evening was sold out there was about 1400 people there I think I mean it was something ridiculous right. like that I mean it might not have been that much but I mean it was so rammed this place and a really kind of strange setting for a gig as well in this hall of the, of the British Library but it was yeah it was great I think one of my first introductions to library music was actually in the library because I remember as a kid in the 70s being able to sign out vinyl and they would have, you know, these uh, special effects records and they would have like sounds from the mummy's tomb or from Frankenstein's castle and you get all these horror albums. But at the same time, they would have these kind of like Tropicalia compilations or these kind of Latin theme compilations of library musicians. They'd have like, for example, spy themes or uh, thriller themes or Tropicalia themes. And it was all these themed records. And that's what I remember as a kid without really having any knowledge of the whole, you know, genre of library music. And and none of those records went back because I've seen loads of them from from so many collectors have got records that still have the library tag with the stamp. <laughs> Oh, yeah, because Because yeah. people yeah. found those records in the library and was like, no, I'm not giving that back. I'll keep that. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole thing. You never saw them anywhere else, did you? That was the point, you know. They, they, yeah, they, weren't, they weren't for mass con- for consumption. consumption. You know, they, I mean, they were for mass consumption, but just, you know, people couldn't buy them. They were just for background. interesting in the film that you you kind of almost gloss over what library music was traditionally for and how the kind of setup worked if you know what i mean you kind of allude yep. to it a little bit but you don't sort of go into much detail about sort of why they were produced and the whole process of them being sent out to you know radio stations tv stations filmmakers and then licensing the music to to use that so i was curious was that just the way it kind of came together or was that like a conscious decision on your part yeah i mean i think that side of the business is quite boring for a film this film is really intended for two purposes firstly the nerds and the record collectors and the and the library geeks need to need to be happy but not only that it needs to be an introduction to library music for the general public somebody that has no idea what library is the film is quite nerdy and it does touch on on all the weird and experimental things that, that, that went on but oh, absolutely. It, does need, yeah, yeah. It, it does need to be you know like the first introduction it was walking a fine line of do we go really layman and assume that that nobody even knows that whole process at all sure. and then alienate the collectors and, and the people that have known about it for years or do we go really nerdy and alienate the people who haven't got a clue about library music so it was a real it was a kind of like a, a mm. fine line and a, and a balancing act to, to make everybody happy and I think we did that because the music 
is so recognizable. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, wherever you grew up, you heard the music that's played in the film. The US library was, a lot of that was licensed from the UK. So some of the same theme songs or some of the same pieces of library are used for theme songs in both countries, in the US and in the UK for totally different shows. So yeah. you've got people in the US that hear something and it takes them back to the NFL. Or here in the UK, you, you hear the same bit of music, but actually it's it's a weird game show or something. Tim and I were talking earlier about how uh, what I know is the Grange Hill theme is actually a theme to something that he used to watch as a kid in Canada. That's amazing. That's Chicken Man by Alan yeah. Hawkshaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strange piece of music. It's been used on on loads of things. Chicken Man was actually used for two programs. I think it was Chicken. Yeah, it was Chicken Man. It was used for two programs on the same TV channel on the same day every week. <laughs> one was early afternoon, and one was sort of like late afternoon when the kids came home from school, and nobody realised for about a year that the same bit of music was being used for the theme tunes. Was the theme music for Give Us a Clue as well? That's right. It? it was Give, it was yeah. Give Us a Clue. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Crazy. I'm Old, I'm old enough that I remember all this shit so I remember yes. hearing a lot of this stuff yeah me you know, too I can remember <laughs> the 70s yeah. you know I remember all these cues on the Sweeney and stuff like that and this, you know watching the Sweeney again now it's just like oh yeah shit yeah I recognise that one and that one and that one <laughs> most famous bit of library music that we know here in Australia is associated with uh, Brian Bennett, the drummer of the Shadows. He went and composed the music for the limited overs cricket transmission that they show on Channel 9 here. It's been going around since the late 70s. this really cool piece of footage on YouTube just yesterday where they gave him an award at the MCG I think before limited overs match back in 2010 while he was here touring with uh, Cliff in the Shadows for their 50th anniversary and it just really fascinated me to think that you know Brian Bennett the man who had played the drums for all those classic Shadows tracks and that I tried pointlessly to emulate when I was a kid had gone and written this piece of music it sounded very unshadows like very unrock and roll like but it's just amazing where these composers they'll they do what they have to do to get the job done it's not about doing what they did in a previous life in a rock and roll band it's doing what they have to do to keep KPM or whichever company happens yeah, to, yeah. to get paid. If I remember rightly, that piece is called New Horizons. That's right, yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think that was Brian Bennett's first library cut. Oh my goodness. And I'm pretty sure that's the longest running piece of library in Australia that's been used in Australia. It's certainly the most famous, oh. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I was talking to the guy from EMI actually that, that, that organised that presentation to him this past week, funnily oh, enough. Wow. That, I guess it's a matter of opinion, but. What would you say is the most famous piece of library music out there? I mean, I was about to say, I think it would be the Manamanam. It could be something else. I mean, I, I'm not sure. What would you say would be probably the most recognized or the most famous piece of uh, library music out there today? Uh, oh, man. Uh, there's so many pieces. It really depends on which country you're in. I don't think Manamana is library. I think that, that was actually composed for a soundtrack for a film. Manamana. 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 
Originally, um, I've, I can't remember what the film is, but while we were researching the film, we uh, our film, we came across the clip from the original film that that comes from, and it's a really strange quick clip where there's the scene is is a load of women in a sauna and that music <laughs> plays, and they all go outside in the snow and roll around in the snow naked. So I think. <laughs> I think that that I mean somebody out there will tell you what film that is, but yeah, but the, I think that was the original use for Manamana. It was uh, as part of a, a film soundtrack. Yeah, a lot, um, a lot of Muppets fans had said for years that they thought it was ironic that this piece of music had been written for a soft porn Swedish film of sorts, and then ended up in the in a family friendly yeah, Muppet show. There you go. So you know, you know about it. You know about it already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But in terms of the most famous, I mean, over here maybe the theme from News at Ten. Which is a, a Johnny Pearson orchestral suite, or maybe a theme from Grandstand, Keith Mansfield. That's really famous. Uh, in the States, you're, you're probably looking at something like People's Court. Which is an Alan right. Two cut that's on Themes International, but then all, you know, all over France, those guys had massive success with tracks that were used on French radio because a right. lot of the telemusic stuff was used on, on the radio, and, and I think Slim Pezin composed the music for the Tour de France, so that's probably huh. quite famous in France. So I guess it depends on, on where you're from, and also probably what kind of music you're into. It spans every kind of music, as you know. So there's right. you know, if you're into if you're into sort of bossa nova, you, you'll have a favourite track that's. Right. Right. That, that's in that style if you're into rock you know that you'll have your favorite piece that's, that's a little bit more right. rocky i think we cover quite a few of those sort of big numbers in the film right. there's a i think there's eight or nine big ones. library library greats so they're, they're the right. albums that, that, that everybody um, who's into library knows and wants you know some of those uh, like stefano Trosi feelings which is an right. amazing italian record I guess the answer to that question really is when did you grow up what did right. you grow up watching and, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and which and where because yeah. i was going to say for old school film fanatics there's uh what is it the track funky uh a funky fanfare isn't it or yeah the funky fanfare like Like for coming attractions, whenever the old grindhouse theaters and the old theaters at the in the drive-in, they would have the coming attractions, and it would be funky fanfare that would actually be showing the trailers for what was coming up, and that was the one yes. that they used over and over and over. So that was for me the most famous or the most recognized one. That and uh, the Dave Allen at large, the studio. Oh, yes. oh yeah, yeah, yeah.
were the two that really I went, wait a minute. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got to say as well, thank you very much. If for no other reason, your film has solved like, a, I think, a 3540M mystery for me. I remember seeing, <laughs> seeing these ads on television for a local cinema chain. And there was this piece of music that they used on these ads. And for the cinema chain, they would show previews of action films. And so they had a fairly action-y piece of background music on these cinema ads, which wasn't music necessarily from the film. And I love that piece of music. Never left my head. And then watching your film, and I sit up and I think, hang on, that's a piece of music from 40 years ago. And it was John Cameron's Four O'Clock Earthquake. So, oh, it's a great piece. Yeah. Oh, it's fantastic. And if for no other reason, thank you for your film, because I've now got a 40-year <laughs> mystery song. Well, you're welcome. One of the musicians in the film who's long been a hero of mine outside of the library world is the bass player Herbie Flowers. Like, he played for Bowie, and he'd played that great bass riff on Walk on the Wild Side for Lou Reed. I knew him in yeah. the 80s when he played in uh, the band Sky. There's a moment in the film where you're interviewing him and he says that he originally had a moral problem with library music before he realized that it was providing work to musicians and it was enabling musicians to become composers but did he elaborate what was his original moral problem i think herbie's slightly different in that he made less library music than everybody else that's featured in the film he only made a handful of records whereas someone like john cameron and alan hawkshaw they made hundreds of library records for different libraries I think that the reason that he felt that way goes back to a situation that they had that, that didn't make the film, actually. But there was a, a situation where the library was starting to become really famous and, and popular amongst editors and filmmakers because it was a really cheap and easy way to get great music to be used. But back in the 60s, all the shows had live bands and, you know, even Top of the Pops would have the Johnny Pearson Orchestra. So you'd have the theme tune for that program be a live band and then all the talk shows would have a live band. And, and as Library became more popular, they used live bands less. And the, the Musicians Union thought if there was too much library, then there would be no need for musicians anymore. All of a sudden, all musicians would be out of work. And they kind of put a stop to library in the UK for a, a little while. A lot of the records that we really liked from that period were recorded not in the UK but in places like Germany and, and Belgium so that they could get around this union law and I think maybe because Herbie was more of a musician rather than a composer at that time he probably thought that you know with all these library records he'd be out of a job but in fact he realised quite soon as, as you said that because the musicians he, were, he was working with were the composers and they were calling him in for sessions and he was working on sessions for them and then in turn he was composing his own stuff he could see that there was a need for it and and also it wasn't really putting musicians out of work because they were still getting the live gigs and they were also playing on the sessions for these library records so the amount of work that he had maybe changed his opinion slightly if anything you would figure that recording the library records actually would be more of an advantage to a lot of musicians because they wouldn't have to travel they don't do the interviews they don't do the public press they don't have to live out of a van hauling gear they can just focus on going into the studio doing what they 
they do best in getting out. Your film shows how many sessions they do in one day, you know, going across London by motorcycle, popping in and doing a one-hour session here and doing a three-hour session somewhere else. And for people that love doing what they do or focus musicians, that would be the best way to go about it instead of, like I say, like having to go on tour and lugging all your shit and going through the whole uh, entertainment uh, route. This way, it was the purest form of doing what you do and getting in, doing in, getting out. As a musician, I, I can say that playing live, there's nothing like playing live. Sure. And so I understand why Herbie would want to carry on playing live as opposed to just working in the studio. But right. you're right. You know, these guys were doing three, four sessions a day, five days a week. They were earning a fortune, even though the pay wasn't great. They were still earning twice the amount uh, as, as they would if they did a, a normal job, you know, like a, right. a nine to five type mm-hmm. thing. And then they could still get, you know, maybe a jazz gig in, in the evening after doing three sessions if they wanted to. These guys were the best. They were really the best players. And if they were able to be on any records, um, I, I'm happy because listening to the records, the musicianship is just phenomenal. And maybe if they'd only toured and, and played live, we, we wouldn't be hearing them because, right. you know, there's there's very few good live records, in my opinion. Right. And, uh, you know, and, and these guys were all playing these big bands, orchestral and rhythm section were playing live in the same room for these library records. So right. in terms of musicianship, the craft that they've got and, and the, the compositions that, that they're playing, I mean, it's, it's just phenomenal. It really is. You, you just don't get that now. Just the fact that they were playing so frequently and right. they had to be on their A game straight away. They're just, you know, the chops were amazing and just that almost sort of telepathic level of communication between them when they're playing it. Like you say, Paul, you don't get that anymore. It's just stunning, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, these guys, were, were they were playing so much that, you know, and they were playing with the same group of guys and the same group of guys could be 15 players. But because yeah, yeah. they know everyone so well and, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're having to travel to the next session together or they've got a 20-minute break together. Right. You know, they're all hanging about with each other as well. And, and a lot of the guys all lived in the same area in just north of London. Uh, there's a place called Radlett where a lot of the guys, Alan Hawkshaw, Brian Bennett, Barry Morgan, Les Hurdle, they all lived in that area. So not only are they working together on their own music and on other composers' music five days a week, but then they're also seeing each other at the weekend as well. So it's, it was like this, <laughs> you, know, it's, it's just, you know, that just really doesn't happen. I forget who says it in the film, but he says there's no second takes. They go in there and it's just they bang it right off and you're out the door again into the next studio. Because of the union, they could only work for a maximum of three hours. And in that three hours, they could only record, I think it was 20 minutes of music. They would literally go in, get the music in front of them, have a look and then play. Probably do one run through and then, you know, straight to tape. Yeah, I mean, you've got to have serious chops and balls of steel, you know. Was that three hours a day they were only allowed to play or three hours per session? Uh, It's a three-hour session. Right, okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that seems a little uh, a little mean otherwise. <laughs> so from morning tea through to lunchtime, post lunch through to dinner, and then another session after dinner. So maybe you know, multiple yeah. lots of three hours. Yeah, and probably with different composers as well. You know, or, or in different studios. ago I watched a 
film about the Wrecking Crew, the group of musicians in Los Angeles that were on all the same records for all the big American rock singers and the like. In England, I mean, well, with, I, I guess in other places as well, but we'll focus on England. The musicians who go in to do these sessions for KPM, a separate community from those musicians who went on to do similar things like the Wrecking Crew, that is being nameless musicians who played on sessions for singers that were meant to be heard on records by the general public or were these people doubling up on rock records and library sessions all the guys were doing library sessions and commercial sessions yeah yeah so, so someone like keith mansfield was arranging strings for all the pop stuff and then he'd go and do a load of library sessions that week as well so he'd be he'd be writing and arranging for for both and alan hawkshaw would be playing both library and, and commercial and you know somebody like uh, barry morgan he played on uh, and in fact John Cameron as well they all did it yeah Alan Parker he played with virtually everybody an incredible guitarist Herbie's the same Herbie was playing on lots of library stuff and Dave Richmond did Serge Gainsbourg but he's the bass player on Je T'aime. oh man that's incredible yeah. wow these guys were playing literally on everything they're really kind of like humble and, and they, you know they just don't see that this is that important you know it's just stuff that they played on they half the time they can't even remember the songs that, that we're talking about the, wow. the pieces of music that we're really into and that we really love and that, that you know to buy on vinyl now are hundreds and hundreds of pounds they just you know you play something to them and they go oh it sounds like me but I don't remember that one <laughs> and it's literally it's, it's because they've done so much you know they might have recorded 500 library tracks so right. to remember all of those tracks would, would kind of be impossible I think the music that we've been hearing from what you've termed the classic age of library music the late 60s through the 70s is very yeah. much on a strong funk type of basis and it seems to me like listening to some of this stuff I'm thinking wow this sounds like the sort of music that you'd hear in American movies that have been purposely composed by guys like Lalo Schifrin or David yeah. Shire so I wanted to know how much of the music that people like Alan Hawkshaw and John Cameron and the like, uh, were they looking outside of the library scene to say, right, this is what's popular, right, then that's what we have to work with because it's commercial consideration or how much of it was, no, we want to experiment and were people like Lalo Schifrin and David Shire maybe hearing what these guys were doing and say, wow, that's really groovy, I might bring that to my film. Did you find it with the commercial world and the library world feeding each other or, or was library purely saying, no, this is a commercial design? decision we're just going to go with what's going out there already what we found out quite quickly was that was that a lot of library is copycat so if if somebody had a really big hit then there'd be a few library albums that would sound like that hit just so that they could you know sean lee always says it's a parallel universe library music it's kind of happening it's bubbling away at the same time as what's happening commercially but there's probably not going to be vocals on it so you would get certainly pop songs and styles of music like the herbie hancock headhunters 
was that was copied by loads of library records and, and composers and 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 you'll hear something and you're and it will sound very familiar and it is because it sounds like a commercial hit in fact nick ingman mentioned a soundtrack that he was really into uh, the thomas crown affair mm. he was influenced by that and he made a record that sounded similar to that because he really dug what's happening on that soundtrack whether or not it went back the other way uh, i don't know but library was definitely influenced and i think obviously for the library companies you know their kind of business depends on the music being used and so if the music in 1976 is verging on disco funky kind of stuff right. then um, then they need to make that kind of music because then it's going to be used huh because it made me wonder because i mean when you hear disco and or else you hear groups like chic and i really thought the chic was almost like the bridge in the library music and even you know the whole advent of disco but then as you're saying then it was probably disco that came out that influenced the library music instead of vice versa probably i think because at that time i mean it's really easy to hear a library record now it's really easy to find rare library records online you know people get them they find them and they stick them up on youtube so everyone can hear it but in you know 1978 or something when chic were doing their thing i think it would be probably unless they knew an editor or they were in a, a tv station or a radio station that had a, had a library section and they listened to those records i think it would be quite difficult for them to, to hear library to start with i think it would be unlikely i wouldn't say that, that it wouldn't happen but i think it would be unlikely i think it would probably be the other way around that what was happening at the time was was influencing what the guys were composing but of course they're going to be influenced because they a lot of the guys would have been working on those sessions and playing that music for the commercial hits anyway right, right. so maybe not you know maybe not a chic record but they'd be they'd be working on something right. les hurdle did all the donna summer stuff with uh, Giorgio moroda oh man so i mean he was playing bass on that stuff so he's obviously going to go and when he makes library he's going to he's going to play the same kind of licks and uh, he's going to you know his, his head's going to be in that space so it's inevitable uh, one thing to talk about making library music commercial more specifically is i was thinking about italy because we were talking about this earlier just between us about how i noticed that they used a lot of the library music for the early italian polizia films in the giallis <laughs> Goblin and long before Fabio Fritzi and a lot of these guys and yeah. was there a lot of the stuff that was actually commissioned for Italian film or was it intended like that or was it just licensed out you know Italian live music is kind of like a bit of a mystery to me to be, to be perfectly honest with you I'm not going to pretend that I know the answer to that question I know a lot of Italian library music and I was lucky enough to meet some of the composers that made some of the best library music and we filmed in the studio where I Mark IV recorded all those amazing records that they made and also recorded a lot of the music for soundtracks for Italian films and Maurizio and Antonello from I Mark IV did speak about Giallo films but how they were licensed or you know how they came I've, I have no idea to be perfectly honest with you you need mm. to speak to somebody like Johnny Trunk or um, who else might know about that mike wallace might know about that kind of thing because those guys are real experts in italian but that's kind of like a, a, a whole nother world italian library music that really 
oh yeah that re- that really is experimental and that really does kind of do its own thing whereas i think the uk stuff it reflects what was happening at the time and it and it reflects that kind of like 60s groovy music or you know 70s leading into right. disco and kind of soul but italian stuff is you know whatever you want to do you, you can kind of do it and whatever instruments you want to use go for it and it can be weird and it can be noisy and it can be harsh and abrasive and it doesn't matter and that's what's special about italian live music i think one of the composers that you put a highlight on in the film and now i, I just want to search out everything he's ever done was uh Yankan nilovich I don't know if he arranged his own material, but you know, whoever did the arranging as well as the composing was just complete and utter genius. I mean, the music had this sort of jazz fusion-y sort of thing that wouldn't have been maybe out of place in maybe not quite Mahavishnu Orchestra territory, but it's it's still got that level of complexity. And it, it seemed to me like you know some of the other composers were going for let's keep it melodic and hooky and simple, and yet you got guys like Yanko doing something really adventurous like that it also seemed to me like they some of the composers were saying oh, it was a chance to just experiment we put it into the library and if it got licensed it got licensed was that something that uh, you found a lot of people had said to you regardless of whether it sort of made it into the film but did a lot of the composers say yeah we use this as an opportunity to experiment yeah a lot of the guys were able just to go for it some of the libraries would I mean they'd all write briefs but some of the libraries would get the music back and realise that the music didn't fit the brief so they'd rewrite the brief to fit the music <laughs> you know so, so that they could use it. But someone like Yanko, who I've got to say is a really, really lovely guy, really, really nice, I mean, incredibly talented. The music he made is incredible. He kind of walks the line of being super funky and super rocky and, you know, has that orchestral arrangement. And I mean, he can kind of do everything. Um, and he's still making music now, which is really cool. I mean, experimental, yes. Could they get away with doing what they wanted to do? Probably, if it was good. You know, there's a lot of terrible library music out there. There's probably more bad library music than there is good library music. So maybe some of that experimentation didn't work in the in the way that it should have. What you're saying, Paul, to me, if you were to put it in the terms of, like, visual art, it seems almost like everything that came out of England was almost like traditionalist, whereas the Italians were the abstract artists. You probably could say that, yeah. But I think, again, in the film, there's a guy called David Neratini, and he explains that at that period of time, Italy had you know, some conflict and it was quite a, a, a strange atmosphere in that country at that time. And so the music reflects what was happening uh, there. So I so I think maybe they're a little bit more experimental, but there might also be, because of what was happening, that is reflected in, in what the composers were making. Maybe it just seems more experimental because of that. But also they did use, you know, strange, funny combinations of instruments. 
so then straight away you think there's a you know a harmonica with a banjo and a you know slap bass and <laughs> strings. Right. So <laughs> well, no slight against a, a group like Goblin, but now after watching this, it seems to me it feels to me like Goblin isn't so so original anymore. Not to put them down, I'm just saying that it just seems to me for everything that came before Goblin. Now I'm just like okay, I can see where you know where this came from. Yeah, and those guys. I mean, those guys were doing it at the same time as well. Back in the day, library was quite a small thing, especially in Italy. The soundtrack musicians were you know it was such a small scene they all knew each other and i don't think that anyone was was ahead you know they were definitely working in parallel mm-hmm. you know when you're composing for a film you've got to hit certain cues and you've got to make the music fit the scene whereas with library you can just make up the scene in your head and and then the music will come so with the library stuff you can definitely be more experimental in that sense and maybe that's why you know stuff by brunellini and, and Torosi and you know the guys from my mark four maybe that's why it appears to be more experimental and, and more maybe a little bit ahead but i don't know all that I'm, i mean i'm still discovering that music if i'm ever listening to anything in the background i just put italian library music on youtube or spotify or something and i'm bound to find something i've never heard before because there's there's so much of it i've been doing this for four years this, this film and i'm still a beginner i'm a complete novice <laughs> there's so much of it out there that's the exciting thing i mean here i am at you know, my stage of life and through your film i'm only just sort of opening up to this world and i think right okay i've got the next 20 30 years covered yeah. rabbit holes to go down yeah if you yeah. can afford it <laughs> I think it was Les Hurdle in the film where he made the observation that as composers or performers, they just never knew where the music was going to end up. Actually, no, I think it was John Cameron who made that point. And I think it was him who said that the tune Half Forgotten Daydream ended up in an Emmanuel film and then ended up years later behind George Clooney in an espresso ad. Yes. I found that absolutely hysterical. I can't remember if it was in your film or in an interview I saw online where they said the Dave Richmond tune can function, which absolutely rocked my world. I love it. They they use it in in a cologne ad, but it also ended up in the opening of Misty Boto. denim ad wasn't it i remember that. that's right kid. yeah yeah that's in the film yeah and it's yeah. it was called something else in australia actually that, that aftershave and we used the advert from the australian release oh. in the okay. film because we, oh, we, we couldn't get the denim one so we used the australian one <laughs> so, I, I mean i think that could make a whole documentary unto itself the use of library music in porn films right. Got the, the, the deep throat emmanuel Opening a misty Beethoven, boom, chaka, 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 boom, chaka, chaka. Did the composers ever work towards a brief for those sorts of films? Did they get a note saying, make this extremely erotic? (laughs) (laughs) You know, none of them would admit that, actually. Um, (laughs) 
<laughs> if that happened, they didn't tell us that. But but they they did all find it quite amusing that that their music had been used for different porn films. They they all sort of said, no no no, we we didn't watch it though. I know it was used for that because it came on my royalty statement, but I I never saw it. <laughs> there, there there was a lady there. She was singing, and every time she said she'd be breathy. Barbara. That was hilarious where she's like, yeah, there must have been somebody standing behind me because every time I just let out this little breathy, ah, and I just thought that's kind of hilarious that, you know, you could use that tune would actually be used in so many different ways. She's really fantastic. And that record, Vocal Shares and Tone on, on The Wolf, is one of the classic records. And, and it's, it's one of the few records that's that's got vocals. You know, one of the few library records that's got vocals. I think the, the amount that we came across, I mean, we listened to thousands and thousands of library records wow. while making this film. And, and I think there's there's really only a handful that had vocals and that's one of them and it's, it is a real classic but she worked with wordless vocals using her voice more as an instrument right she did yeah she she did and she, i think I, I believe i'm i'm not 100 sure and neither was john cameron but we think that that she was the voice on half forgotten daydreams as well none of them can remember <laughs> just another session Exactly. Uh, Paul, were there any musicians or composers that you kind of wanted to get to or talk with about for one reason or other you couldn't? I mean, I assume a lot of them have probably passed on, aren't with us anymore, but are there were there specific people you'd have liked to speak with and you just didn't get the opportunity? No, I mean, there's a couple of people that, that cropped up after the fact that I would have liked to have included, but there just wasn't enough time. Mm-hmm. There was a couple of composers that, that, that we wanted to see that obviously uh, died. Someone like Klaus Weiss from Germany. I mean, his, his, his work's phenomenal. He'd already died before we made the film. Maybe somebody like, like Roger Webb as well, who, who made some amazing stuff, and especially the stuff that he made for Capital Media Music in the States. That kind of has that LA kind of disco funk sort of vibe. We were unable to get to him, but not really. I mean, everybody that, that's in the film, we, we, we managed to track down pretty easily. At first, the guys were a bit like, why do you want to talk about this? <laughs> why why are we talking about weird records that I made 40, 50 years ago that I don't even remember? And then as we started to talk to them, they realised that, that actually people like this stuff and there's, you know, there's a following for this music and, mm-hmm. and a following for them as compo- as library composers. And so they kind of got into the idea of it. And then and then the further down the line we got making the film, we had people, you know, sort of saying, you've got to go and see this guy or people phoning us and saying, why aren't I in the film? <laughs> yeah, sort of laughing. So we got pretty much got everybody that we wanted. Great that people were so receptive to it and wanted to be part of it. That's, uh, right. that's really good. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, yeah. it shows the film. You, you cover a real breadth of sort of talent there you know all the big names and uh, you know some of the unknown ones as well it was pretty difficult because we you know we, we were in italy and we were in a studio doing doing the interviews we just finished the first round of interviews and, and we we're having some lunch with the guys and there was a few other people in the studio that come down you know to, to kind of meet us and, and hang out with the, the composers and one of the guys gave me a really he's a really nice guy i must add but he gave me a bit of a hard time because he was saying well you know you've, you've gone to germany you've done the uk and you're here in rome why aren't you going to france 
And I said, but you know, we, we're, we're making this film with no budget. You know, we, we're literally, uh, you know, funding it ourselves and we just can't get to France. And he, he said, but you can't make a film about live music without going to France. <laughs> and it kind of gave me a hard time. And then I, I said to the guys, oh man, you know, we, we've got to go to France now. <laughs> so then right. we ended up going to Paris as well. Maybe this might sound like a stupid thing, but I just was wondering, it seems like the whole library phenomena was, was all centered around Europe. But was there any industry in America at the same time there was a few few little libraries and again it's, it's very difficult to, to remember all the, and retain all the information because there literally is, is so so much but the main library in the states was capital media music it was the, the library arm the library division of capital records um, and okay. we feature that in the film because because ole george who run that for years and years and years is still working in library and he's still based in in hollywood he was probably the main player i guess over there there was some smaller libraries but then the rest of the library was licensed from europe so there was an nfl library but that was mainly kpm recordings there was some american library there i think the composer sam spence was american but yeah the, I, th- I think he was american but then the rest of it was was people like uh, johnny pearson and, and keith mansfield uh, right. being licensed from the uk the american guys that, that collect library they can't just go down to their local thrift store or, um, or record shop and find library records like, like you could do here 20 years ago. Yeah, there was a time. Got a, a little library music story. I think I've told you that this last week, didn't I, Morris? You did, um, yeah, yeah. I used to work uh, in a comic book store which was above a second-hand record shop and the guy that owned the shop, Nasher, was... Uh, He's a bit of a character. He got a phone call one day from a guy in Cardiff who had run an anime sort of back in the 70s and 80s. And he rang up Nasher and said, look, I've got this lockup just full of these old records that I don't want. Do you maybe want to come and have a look at them? So uh, Nasher went all the way down to Cardiff. The van came back with uh, pretty much complete runs of like KPM and Chapel and DeWolf. Like, you know, all, all the classic stuff. And I, I remember vividly him sort of loading them into the shop and just these huge piles of them everywhere. And he spent the whole day just putting one off the top of the stack and playing one. And I would run downstairs and say, oh, that's the music from the Keep Britain Tidy advert from 1974 <laughs> or whatever. You know, just insane. I've, I've, you know, that's like once in a lifetime thing. You never see that many of them in one place. There's certainly us, us normal schmoes don't, unless, you know, you uh, go and visit the right places. But yeah, that was insane. And I think he, he sold about five of them, and that actually covered the cost of what he paid for all wow. of them. And there was probably close to like 2,000 of them. It was just ridiculous. Wow. You know? But uh, yeah, that was one of those uh, sort of mother load scores, you know. I guess that just doesn't really happen anymore, but... TV stations that would buy complete collections like for their libraries like is that how it would work TV stations and radio stations had libraries so they'd be they'd have the records sent out to them for them right. to use there's stories like that that we've heard you know where, where lockers turn up with with thousands of records in them and yeah uh, uh, you know or you know sort of boxes on the street but you, you never know where they actually come from I did hear a story that somebody in the film told us where they some they got a, a tip off that, that there was a TV station closing down and they were throwing out all their archive of, of records 
And so the guy phoned up, had the number for somebody there, phoned up and said, listen, I've heard you've got a load of library records. And they said, yeah, we are. We're going to throw them away tomorrow. If you can get up here with a van, you can have them. So he went up the following day, but somebody had beaten him to it. Oh, no. Somebody who worked there had sort of said, had realised maybe they might be worth something. So had taken a a lot of them and put them to one side. And and, and this person said to him, look, you can't take anything that's on the floor, but anything that's in the the shelving you can have. So he ended up taking hundreds and hundreds of library records. I don't know what happened to them, but he got a big score. The thing you mentioned in in the movie as well at uh, at one point is that you know, these things probably had really limited pressings. Yes. I can't imagine there was more than a couple of thousand of each of them pressed, you know? so uh, not, is, not, Probably tiny. not even that. Yeah. The Italians would probably would press about 300. In 40 years, half of those will be more, you know, maybe more than half of those would be destroyed. You know, so whatever's left, you know, maybe 50's left in the world. And so that's why the price of those rare Italian things are, are so high. Do you think that an offshoot either of the film or the newfound popularity among collectors of of these records would be that the companies that own the rights to these tunes like EMI and Chapel and the like would say all right we'll do another limited pressing on new vinyl nowadays has that I been think happening that's been happening anyway I think recently a whole bunch of KPMs have just been reissued haven't they on sort of nice vinyl pressings Th- that's right yeah yeah be, be with records have just done 12 I think KPN and themes um sort of classic records the libraries themselves that if they're still going now you know someone like emi they're kind of focused on looking after the catalog but you know their back catalog but also still putting out new music and and still getting placements and licensing for their new composers and new new music so they're allowing smaller record labels to reissue them you know to license these records and reissue them uh, on vinyl so that is happening and, and i don't know whether that's that you know this whole sort of revival and interest in in library music is is down to the film but certainly while we were making it you could feel this sort of buzz happening and then you've got oh. david hollander's book and you've there was another book about um about robin phillips uh, mm. who ran kpm there was all these things kind of bubbling away as we as we made the film so there's definitely a huge interest in in library currently you're talking about the limited pressings and everything is there anything you know of that's kind of like the projects that uh, Alan Lomax did about the archiving? You know, uh, is there anybody or any groups that are trying to kind of compile collections of all the library music for future reference, you know, in order to make sure that at least people have the ability to hear it or reference it? There's some great guys working for the libraries. So some, you know, a company like EMI that, that have KPM and themes and they've got uh, Conroy and Color Sound and Selected Sound. They have just announced, they may have already done it, but they've, they've announced that they're going to put all of their catalogue on Spotify. So wow! So you, you'll, be, you'll be able to stream any of those records they've got. So they, they have all the, the Brown series and the Greensleeve KPMs. Okay. So that, that, I mean, that goes back tens and tens of years, you know, decades back. I mean, I don't even know That's when they awesome. started the Brown. When did they That's start awesome. with the Brown Sleeves? I mean, I don't even know. But yeah, you, you'll have all the music from Alan Hawkshaw, Keith Mansfield, Johnny Pearson, all those amazing composers that's all going to be available online so and i think you i think it might even be on itunes as well so you can even download it i think so i I, yeah i definitely think they're looking after you know what they've got and they realize what they've got is is really special so that's cool was there a difference stylistically between the kpm brown sleeves and the green sleeves uh the browns were much more orchestral uh, and you've got the sort of pastoral stuff and yeah you should listen to some of that stuff it's it's, some of it's really of its time but a lot of it's amazing but but the green sleeves definitely have that late 60s 70s sound to them you know the, the, which which is why we focused on that music because it was made at the time when recording was was at its finest and and they were 
recording in, in the greatest studios with fantastic engineers. The musicians was second to none. And probably library was at its peak, you know, sort of the first time that, that it was really being used on everything, on all the big TV shows and on radio shows and jingles. And, you know, so its usage was really high, which is why we focused on that period of time. You mentioned a little bit in the film about the head of KPM who then moved over to Bruton Music, Robin Phillips, and I think you speak to his son. But for the audience who haven't seen the film yet, can you just tell us a little bit about Robin and how it was that he sort of revolutionised KPM to being the biggest thing in library music at the time? Yes. Uh, Well, unfortunately, I didn't meet him because he passed away before we even thought about making this film. But he really was, he is a library legend. I mean, he kind of created the business. There was libraries around way before he was involved in library music. The Wharf was probably the first library. So they were already around for maybe... 100 years or something I mean it's, it's bonkers how long they've been about they go right back to silent film but what Robin did is he took library music from that orchestral style of music and the, and the big band kind of thing and made it sound like pop music which meant that it was usable for TV and for film because it sounded like the music that was being made by the current rock and roll stars so he was able to, to kind of change the way library music was thought about and was, and was seen and, and, and definitely he had a hand in making all those classic records that, that we like and as you say he moved from KPM and started Bruton Music well Bruton Music's still around now it's owned by Universal but while he was in charge of it it, it kind of went through that late 70s and into the 80s where there was a little bit more electronic music about synthesizers were, were being used more commonly the music on Bruton that he was in charge of and he was making was that great period in the early 80s where it was still partly live so you'd have live drums live bass but then you'd have synthesizer and, and kind of more computerised music which for me still sounds really current and still sounds really good but he really did do something quite special with library music everybody that we spoke to about Robin loved him and everybody thought he was uh, amazing and they they did say that he uh, revolutionised library music How's the film been received by audiences and other reviewers? I know you've been travelling around with it a fair bit. Yes, we've tried to steer clear of the, the festival circuit, the film festival circuit, because we did that before with, with the film Youth, and it can be a bit of a drag doing that. It's a bit of a weird... I mean, I, I'm not really um, an expert in how film festivals work and, and how they run, but but it didn't seem like the right route for this film. And the fact that we built up such a buzz just through word of mouth, there was a, an audience waiting for it. So we knew that the kind of buzz that, that was happening meant that, that we would probably be able to screen the film in a few places, you know, it's, it's definitely the, the, the countries and the cities that we visited while making the film. But in fact, it's, it's exceeded that. It's, it's been quite incredible. We've, we've had three sold-out screenings in London. We've been to Germany, so there's been four screenings in Germany, Copenhagen, 
Copenhagen. There's been one in Sydney. There's another one in Sydney next month. Come to Melbourne. Um, Come to Melbourne. Yeah, we, we, we haven't had any requests in Melbourne, actually, yet. I'll fix that up. Fix fix that one. Yeah, we've, <laughs> we've, got, um, we've got Poland. Um, we've got Paris. We've just come back from Tel Aviv. Yes. We had a big screening there. Yeah, I mean, it's gone sort of crazy. There's lots of interest and lots of people want to see the film. And I think because we're not on any streaming services yet, there is a kind of a need to see it because it's not instantaneous. You can't just put Netflix on and find it. Not only that, people do want to see this in the cinema. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting thing because I knew that there'd be people that wanted to, that would want to see this, but I didn't realise how many people would want to see it. It's been received really well and, and everybody in the film is really happy about it. And, you know, we've had some great reviews. Yeah, it's just, it's just going really, really well. It's, the film is available on a limited edition DVD. We'll include um, so if you can, the show notes. Yeah, thanks. I mean, if you can't get to a screening, there is a DVD. The thing about having screenings is that people go out and see it, you know, and, and you get these little communities of library fans in each city. It's really cool. Everyone's putting events on. You know, we, we haven't got a promotion company on board. You know, it literally is word of mouth and, and people that promote cool things in their city ask us to come and come and show the film and do a Q&A. And then, we you know, we do a bit of DJing and like a, a really cool party in each one of these cities. So it's been really good fun. And, and, and I think it's going to continue for the, at least the next few months uh, with screenings. We've got some guys in the States that are looking to put on some screenings in the next few months. So we'll probably have five or six screenings in, in the US. Yeah, and hopefully it just continues. And you're finding that people are approaching you after the Q&As or at the screenings and telling you about their massive library collection or people are coming and saying never knew about this before. You're getting a mixture of both library and non-library people coming to the films? I think that the major audience for it is library fans at the moment. I mean, when it goes on a you know on a streaming service or something like that, you'll get sort of everyday music fan watching it. But at the moment, it's people that are into library, people that are into kind of rare records and record collecting and people that are into hip-hop because a lot of this music was sampled or has been sampled and is being sampled for hip-hop music. So there's a lot of those kind of characters. But then there is also people that are just interested in seeing a new music documentary, which is really cool. The film goes for just like a little bit under two hours, but I've got to say, it just flew by really, really quickly. You have enough information about this artist or about this particular time in the history of library music or go to Paris and you go to Rome. You just seem to touch on a lot of things and you think, okay, I've got a little bit of information about this. Okay, what's next? And just that two hours just goes by. Were you sort of aware of the visual style and the way you wanted to tell the story or did that sort of come up in the editing room? We knew that you'd have to focus on the different countries separately for short amounts of time because otherwise it would be kind of a bit confusing you know sort of jumping between languages and although it's subtitled you know you do need to focus in on guys from Paris and the guys from Rome and for a small section just to tell their story and, and kind of introduce who they are but there was a definite aesthetic for the film because we had a lot of talking heads we interviewed 50 people or something 52 people so there's a lot of talking heads and we realised early on that when you're making a film about commercial music there was always somebody with a camera so you've got loads of archive footage and you've got loads of archive photographs whereas with library there was nobody taking any photographs or very few photographs and there's very few bits of footage of the guys in the studio so we had to come up with clever ways of kind of telling these stories and and illustrating it so you're not just looking at people talking for two hours so it's good that it, that it flew by for you and it was, it was interesting i mean it, it, for me it was definitely keeping the pace up because essentially this is a film about recording music and then people collecting this music that, that's really rare so that could be quite a boring 
boring story. Luckily, all the characters that are in the film are brilliant and they've all got fantastic personalities and they all tell fantastic stories. So from that side of things, it was easy. It was actually hard knowing what to cut out and what to keep in because there were, I mean, we had so much good footage and so many good stories and anecdotes. So then it was really just a case of piecing that together and then illustrating some of the stories in an interesting way, I guess. But yeah, I mean, pretty early on, we realised, you know, how it would go down. And the hardest part really was we got to a point where we were kind of editing the, the interviews as we went so that we definitely had the good chunks of the interviews ready to use. And, and we knew that after about four or five interviews, we knew the direction in which the questions would naturally go. So you could start to piece together little chapters, if you like. We'd cut chapters of the film. So there'd be TV usage. So you'd, you'd clump together all the bits that people spoke about with regard to their music being used in TV. And then that would be one little chapter. And you'd cut that and then you'd refine that as you go. And then somebody would say something else and then that would be dropped in. And But then the last kind of eight months of the process was really just every day trying to make a film that was under two hours because for about a year... It it was four hours. Oh, man. Um, it really was a case of how do we get this down to something that's watchable? Because as much as I like library music and the people that are involved, I don't think I'd want to sit through four hours of it. I, I, I don't think I could, unless it was DVD extras or in two parts or something like that. It needed to be something a normal music fan would watch. And I think two hours was probably the limit. And I think we got a really solid, fast-paced film that's... I mean, I don't think it's boring, and I've seen it a thousand times. <laughs> um, I'm a little bit biased, of course. But, you know, when we go to these screenings in different cities, I end up having to... I always say I'm not going to watch it, and I always end up getting stuck in the theatre watching it. I watch the audience, and, and they all laugh in the right places, and, you know, they kind of go, oh, you know, at different spots. So, And that's universal. They all seem to laugh at the same things. doesn't matter what country you're in, so that's that's good. What's on next once you've run out of places that you want to show the film to? What's the next thing that you have planned? For this film, I think the next thing after the DVD and, and, and after things settle down with screenings, inevitably it's got to end up somewhere like on a video on demand type thing, a streaming service or something. I think that that was one of the goals that we had when we first set out to do this was that, you know, there's these musicians and composers although people know their music they don't know who they are and so telling this story is about shedding a bit more light on these guys and so it seems that the place where they'd get the most amount of viewers would be on a video on demand service but for me in terms of film i'm giving it a bit of a rest for a while yeah i've i, I mean i've i've spent four years on this one and the last year was kind of crazy making this we made this with with no budget and with three people so <laughs> it's like the most it's like the most crazy easy thing to do you know to, to, to try and make a feature film a feature documentary with no budget and no crew you know we literally had two cameras and a couple of lights and some sound gear and us and that was it i spent eight months editing it in terms of film for the for the time being that's it for me because i need to get back to making some music and kind of doing what i would usually be doing also the other reason is that it needs to be a really really special story to want me to make a film about it it's going to be really hard to beat library music you know library music this this film has never been made before you know there's a million films about certain rock bands you know everybody knows about the Beatles everybody knows about the Rolling Stones you know and it, it's hard to find a subject that hasn't been covered and I think library music pretty much hadn't been covered until now you know there's the odd thing here and there but this is you know the sort of 
the only film that's been made about it thus far there might be another one about italian music or french music or something but for now this is the only one so it would have to be something pretty special for me to spend four years of my life making (laughs) regardless of the struggle and the budget you proved that you can do it and you did it very damn well thank you thanks yeah i mean if you want to do something you just do it you know and and, and right there's lots of things that, that can stand in your way but once you've started it you've got to kind of do it and and if you don't do it then it's never going to be done the thing for me is if if i start a project i need to finish it regardless of whether it's commercially successful or not this was a, you know a total passion play and something that we all want to do yeah so we just we just did it i'm glad you like it i'm glad that you, that you think it's a good film thank you it doesn't look like a three-man job it really doesn't looks like you did have a lot of people on it oh yeah we fooled them all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just wanted to say thank you, Paul, for taking the time to be with us today and, you know, just to uh, really share your experience in making the film. And, you know, you really opened our eyes to a lot of things. I mean, and again, it was great, you know, almost like a deja vu going back and recognizing jingles. And you know, it's almost like Pavlov's dog where all of a sudden you perk up and you're like, I recognize that. Oh, yeah, that's right. It was great going back. Things that you, you thought you'd long forgotten about and suddenly it just jogs the old brain pan and there you go you know well thank you I'm glad that you guys really enjoyed it and uh, thanks for having me on here and this is the first time I've done a, a podcast with three people in three different countries so this this is a real first <laughs> and it's worked three with no dropouts three. there you go yeah well yeah, we touch wood it's been alright so far oh yeah we're, oh, oh god the file has failed uh, damn it gotta start again no, no. <laughs> I'll see you tomorrow yeah yeah <laughs> look we do have quite a few Skype issues normally, so um, and, and we've been luckily kind of free of them tonight. So uh, yeah, yeah. this worked out very well. The gods obviously wanted it to happen, and it was fate. So yeah, yeah, no, it's, like it's good stuff. They like library Thanks, music. yeah. Thanks so much, and thanks for waiting so long. Because I know, I know you you initially got in touch like probably about a year ago or something. Uh, <laughs> some, something like oh, that. It was but, worth it. Oh yeah, we, we were going to stick with it. You were you were keen to do it, so we were keen to have you. So okay, so we'll be back in a moment. Thanks so much, Paul, for joining us, and we'll be back in a moment to talk about what will be on next month's episode of See Here. Thanks to Paul Elliott for his time. And actually, I don't think we mentioned anything about his partners in crime during that interview. So a big shout out and thanks to Sean Lee and Sean Lambeth, who were his co-conspirators in the making of that really fantastic. Uh, I'll be putting a link to where you can buy the DVD if you choose to do that. But if the film turns up in your city and certainly it still has a life in that regard, Paul will be bringing it to a town near you. Hopefully, we wholeheartedly recommend that you go search this film out. So as I said at the start of the show, we've run out of people to talk to for the time being, so we're going to get back to doing what we used to do, which was talk about films, just the three of us, maybe with the occasional guest, you know, to help shoot the shit with us, but next month, it'll just be the three of us. I think, Tim, it's your turn to pick a film. What film would you like to talk about next month? 
All right. Well, in the news recently, a famous group of octogenarians has decided that they're going to go on yet another tour once again, if they can manage to stay alive that long. I thought, well, let's go back a number of years with the same group. Let's go back to a famous little concert in California in a place called Altmont. And I'm thinking uh, we ought to look at a famous document shot by the Marseilles brothers otherwise known as Give Me Shelter. That's a fantastic choice. Oh, man, that is so infamous. I don't think we've actually sort of done a film that focused a lot on a concert. I mean, this film is more than just that, obviously, but have we actually mm-hmm. ever done a concert film before? No, not that I can think of, no. I think this is actually a really great way to open our concert film account because there's so much more than just the music that is presented. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, hopefully this will be a film that a lot of our listeners will have actually seen, but it's quite easy <laughs> to track down if you haven't, so play along with us. But this is certainly a story well worth telling. Won't spoil it if you haven't seen it to this point. This is one of the big hitters in the uh, in the See Here Journal of to, had to be done. This was one of the ones that I had been sitting on for a long, long, long time, and I thought, yep, now's the time. Actually, the Stones were never shy about filming themselves for concert films. There's actually, there must be at least four or five films. I mean, we're not talking yeah, about... There was one that was done in the 80s. There was one that was done in the 80s, Let's Spend the Night Together. Right. And, well, then, and then there's Shine a Light. The, the Scorsese film of a few years back. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Then there's one that they never actually officially released, oh, but we're probably uh, also Cocksucker Blues. Right. That yeah, was yeah. the one done around the time that they were recording Exile on Main Street, and they were all absolutely yeah. coked out of their minds, and probably for that reason, they've never seen fit to put it out. Right. So probably we'll end up speaking about all of these films, but Gimme Shelter is a fantastic film to focus on, so looking forward immensely yeah. to talking about that next month. So housekeeping, if you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at C here podcast at gmail.com you can join our facebook group which is uh, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast that's s-w-h-e-a-r we're now on spotify and on stitcher as well as downloading from itunes or see here dot podbean.com yeah our instagram account if you just search for uh, at see here podcast or one word you enjoy the occasional posts i put up when i remember to you put up about ten thousand photos a month don't you well like i say the occasional posts when i remember to <laughs> right indeed <laughs> if i was actually making an effort it'd be like 50 60 000, so <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to make do with 10,000. Yeah, yeah. Indeed. Once again, it's been a chunk of fun doing this, and we're well into 2019 now, so looking forward to another year of great film discussion. We still have a request from last year, which we'll probably do in April or May of this year for Tyler Kennedy, I think. So until next month, where we uh, ask you to give me shelter, just be nice to each other, listen to some library music, go pay $100 a pop for some KPM records on eBay, <laughs> Oh. That's cheap, goodness, yeah. Oh, good lord. I mean, I meant for the ones that no one likes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's why I said earlier, if you can afford it, when you said, yeah, that, um, you know, it's going to open me up to a whole, whole new world. I said, yeah, if you can afford it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, yeah. So until next month, be nice to each other, listen to some great music, library music or other, and uh, we'll be back next month to uh, talk some Rolling Stones at you. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Bye.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 